Father, we just ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, renew our minds according to the truth of the scriptures, God, and, and uh, renew our minds concerning how life really is, God. We just ask you for a cleansing of just all of the things of the world, movies and, and uh, different stories being told, God. We just ask you for a renewal of the mind. We know how life really is and what really is coming and how to stand before you, God, as you have ordained it. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would come in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, so this phrase, the, the righteousness of God, really it cuts to the heart of, of the whole contentious, the, the whole contention between the holiness of God and and the depravity of man. And this phrase, the righteousness of God, is probably the most argued over phrase in the history of the church. And, uh, and it, was, it was what Luther, it, it's what everything hinged on for Luther, is that this phrase, the righteousness of God, did not refer to the quality that God possessed because that was horrifying to him. And he knew he deserved eternal damnation. Even though he was as good a monk as there had ever been, he knew he deserved eternal damnation and the righteousness of God terrified him. But then the breakthrough happened, which is... Uh, the, Luther's breakthrough was that the righteousness of God was something he imparted, that it was an alien righteousness that we received that was from God and given to us rather than something he possessed. Of course, he possesses righteousness. But the phrase righteousness of God is something that he imparts in Paul's writing rather than possesses. So now what's happened in the last 50 years is you have a large movement of within the academy that's saying Luther was wrong, that he was confused, that within Second Temple Judaism, the righteousness of God means the covenant faithfulness of God, and it's a quality that he possesses. And Luther was wrong about the righteousness of God. It's not an alien righteousness from apart from ourselves that he imparts to us, but rather it's something that he possesses and carries through that we simply participate in by faith. So the answer to what must I do to be saved is simply believe Jesus is the Messiah and you'll be saved. Rather than acknowledge you're a sinner, put faith in the sacrifice in your stead and you will be saved. Right? It shortcuts the avenue. And the problem is that this isn't, this isn't, it's just not how life is, and it's not how redemptive history is going to unfold. And what it lacks, this movement called the New Perspective, what it lacks is a recognition of the sacrificial system. And whenever all this happens, and again, again what, you know, the common saying is that the pew is 50, 50 years behind the tower, all right, meaning that the, the, common person in the church hears 50 years later what is argued over in the academy, okay? Mm -hmm. cool. And so what's happened is, is that all of this is about 
30, 30 to 40 years out, and now all of a sudden, all of these ideas are filtering down and being preached day in and day out. Mm-hmm. One of the main guys who's really made it publicly accessible is N.T. Wright, and he's, uh, he's one of the m- more conservative of, of the folks within this that are saying this. But what always ends up happening is that there is a neglecting of the sacrificial system and a lack of centering the sacrificial system in the language of the righteousness of God, which wouldn't, it wasn't the case with Paul. The sacrificial system was still central. The temple was still going on. Everything was still centered around Jerusalem. It's where he was coming and going to. It was where he was relating everything to. In Acts 15, he comes back and he relates everything about what God's doing amongst the Gentiles. Acts 21, he comes to the temple. He relates to all the leaders there about what God has done among the Gentiles, right? And everything is relating back there because it's still the center and locus of redemptive history, both in this age and the age to come, right? So the sacrificial system would not have been a relic of the past to them which is how it's related to often in, in modern times. And, and again, this isn't, this isn't a fad that's going to go away. It's going to come like waves upon the church. It's going to come like waves upon the church. And so I, I want to establish in, in our minds and hearts that when you think righteousness of God, you think sacrifice, okay? Rather than... a little bit more because... I, this is kind of negative, what you're saying. Like, okay, so let's look, at, let's look at Romans 1. Oh, okay, so it's on here. So Romans 1, in the middle of page 3. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Because th- this is Romans, Romans 1, 17, 16 and 17 is the, was the, it was the, the like, Luther's breakthrough verse, right? For in the gospel, a righteousness from God. Now, the New Perspective guys freaked out in the early 80s when the NIV came out and it was translated righteousness from God. And they were like, ah! <laughs> righteousness of God. It's God's righteousness. Rah! You know, and they, they write articles. And, you know, the NIV was a bunch of conservative evangelicals headed by Ken Barker, dispensational, you know. So they... <laughs> so for in the gospel, righteousness from God or the righteousness of God is revealed, uh, that's what other translations are, the righteousness of God, is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. So the two ways of reading that are, the righteousness of God is something that God possesses, and, and salvation is accomplished because he was faithful to the covenants, right? Righteousness of God is covenant faithfulness, and he's faithful to the covenants, and therefore, it's for salvation to those who believe in God's covenant faithful, faithfulness. And that the death of the Messiah, and you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and that was the way God was being faithful to the covenants. And you simply believe in him, and you will be saved. Right? Rather than 
a, a little more intricate of a process in which you're saying, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God that's imparted, that's not just a quality or characteristic of God, but it's a righteousness that is imparted from God to us by faith and is the means or the agency of salvation on that day, right? And so... <laughs> It, it didn't, the new perspective hasn't evoked a small response from not only the conservatives, but the Lutherans. So the whole new perspective is a criticism of Luther. So, you know, a whole denomination that's going, John Wesley was not wrong. You know what I'm saying? Right? Or, you know, you criticize your leader, and, and so it's gotten a little bit of a backlash. But... What what I what I want to argue, and and this is the problem, is that people end up getting bogged down in all the semantics and Second Temple literature about righteousness and faithfulness. And you 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 read through Paul's letters, and this is the obvious glaring fact. Okay, faithfulness is never paired with righteousness. God's faithfulness and the righteousness of God are never together. They're, they're never in the same conversation. It's never going on together, right? It's always, you know, a, a theological putting ideas together and, and arguing. But rather, always with the righteousness of God is the sacrificial language and the blood language, okay? So it's clear that when Paul is talking about the righteousness of God, he is referencing a mechanism for salvation in the sacrificial system that is assumed in the language for all of the atonement ideas. Okay, and whether you're familiar with the whole new perspective or not, I, I'm not trying to bog you down in an argument, but I am trying to give you background so that when the ideas start coming at you, and all of the unspoken language and the kind of implicit, you know, scoffing at, you know, uh, legal ideas and penal ideas and substitutionary ideas, that, that stuff starts coming at you and you're like, uh, no, no, I, 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 I know where it's coming from, right? Because it all kind of trickles down. And, and you're, you're not going to subvert and sidestep it because even in the charismatic movement, because M.T. Wright is like a favorite of charismatics. And I'm just like, you don't even know what you're reading. You, you, you don't have any idea the effects that all of this is going to produce, the fruit 10 years down the road, you know, and the attitudes and the and all this anyway. So, John, can you address uh, imputed and or versus imparted? Do you see those as the same or? What, what? Yeah, it's a, it, that's a, it's an old semantic argument yeah. that's, uh, whether it's some sort of, and this is, you know, N.T. Wright always mocks that kind of uh, imparted idea as though it's a gas that floats across the courtroom, you know, and uh, er, it, nobody's saying that it's some sort of, of uh, you know, f physical transfer thing that happens. Almost nobody w will say that. It's, it's imputed as a reckoning. It's a it's an accountant. It's an economic term in which it's a bean counter term in which you are reckoning one for the other, and so it happens 
on the part of God within the the mind of the Godhead is is imputed uh, or or a, a reckoning which comes out of uh, out of Romans four primarily which we'll I don't know if it's in here or not but we'll look at it at some point so no we're I, I, I you know you'll get that at a more popular level of you know he he takes some sort of thing and puts it on you and he sees his son in your stead, which may or may not be that bad, but we want to look at it in in its own language, which is kind of a more of a courtroom scene, and he is reckoned righteous because this and this has has happened. So we don't want to take the, the imagery and language farther than it means. We just want to put it in context and believe it and, and move on. Do you understand? It's it's a it's kind of a it's a substantial transfer as far as imparting and imputing is is a more reckoning idea that happens in the eyes of God. Yeah, and yeah. we don't want to get into that weird. I saw Charles, but I saw Amelia in you know <laughs> Charles was clothed with Amelia and it, that kind of thing. It's like you don't need to. Put the put on Christ Jesus language. Take that in a literalistic way when it's when it's a figurative bit or not, right? Yeah. It's figurative, pointing to a real situation at the day of the Lord when a real courtroom is set up and real charges are brought. But the real thing that happens is the reckoning and the 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 imputing, the accounting on the in the mind of God in that courtroom scene at the end of the age. Makes sense. Yes, so you know, like down the deposit Holy Spirit now unto age to come. Um, That's a substantial thing. Okay, right. So justification, salvation, you know, is ultimately day of the Lord. We'll get there. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's where we're moving. So okay, good. good. I just have a real quick thing to clear. So you're saying righteousness and faithfulness is not. You know, the, those aren't talking in the same language. It's righteousness and sacrifice. But righteousness by faith in the sacrifice is mm-hmm. correct. Yeah. And faithfulness is is kind of related to action. And faithfulness is, is, is going to be... Nobody argues that God's faithful to the covenants. Right. right Absolutely. Right. The, the question is, is there an atonemental mechanism that's part of the whole faithfulness equation? Uh-huh. Or did this just happen and, and God was faithful and, and we don't have to believe in anything but just generically believing in God? Right. Uh-huh. Is there a mechanism of sacrifice and a, an additional reckoning on the part of God that we have to participate in by faith? Uh-huh in the mechanism of sacrifice that is necessary for the salvation. Yeah. Or did we just have to believe this is what God did and we'll be saved. Right. Right? And so the new perspective will say the righteousness of God doesn't have a penal substitutionary mechanism involved uh-huh. for salvation. Okay. And they'll kind of mock and downplay all of that okay. penal substitutionary okay. language. I, I can. Sorry, can you... Really quickly, just um, again talk about how, like, that what you were describing is like God looks at you and sees like Jesus, like that's put on you as your righteousness versus being like courtyard. 
Okay. It's kind of semantics. And again, this is like the whole imputed and parted argument. Uh, who is the guy? Uh, I can't remember his name, but he basically wrote a whole book that said, one way or the other, you're righteous in the end before God, whether it's some sort of substantial transfer or it's just a reckoning in the mind of God. The end game is God considers you righteous in light of your faith in what he's done, right? So... I don't want to. I don't want to sit there and try to make a distinction between them. That's not really that meaningful in the end, and you don't need to. Don't concern yourself with the argument because it's one of those that I don't think in the end really means anything. Yeah. It's a disputable matter. That's kingdom of God's not a matter of imputed versus imparted righteousness. It's a matter of righteousness. <laughs> you know what I mean? In the end, you're either righteous in God's sight in His accounting. In his logistics, you know, in his imputation, in his, in his reckoning, or you're not. And, yeah. and that's the buy. And if you are and you're acquitted of your sins, you inherit eternal life. If you're not, then you would inherit eternal damnation. Okay, so uh, Romans 9. What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that's by faith, but Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, meaning the knowledge of how God has ordained redemptive history, right? Yeah. And how to be saved. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God. <laughs> Again, they freaked out at the NIV. Other ones just have the righteousness of God. And sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So again, you're going to have all kind. I mean, there's just thousands of articles and book after book after book that's written on what does it mean to be the end of the law? And what does it mean? What do works of the law mean? What is the righteousness of God and all this? And again, if you're interested in reading further, Thomas Schreiner is probably the most level-headed human being on the subject. He's, he's a little, you know, but he... he, he He's good at taking all of the arguments and just driving it home. You know, that Paul had a very simple, straightforward. It was about salvation. It was eschatological. And it was a simply in line with the sacrificial ideas that are going on. Okay, so Schreiner's pretty solid. Oh, no, Schreiner, Schneider. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. So the, the, the point here is that the, the desire, the, the, the conversation is around being saved, right? My desire is that the Israelites may be saved, okay? So from the rest of the book, we understand that salvation is in context to the day of the Lord, and it's different language. And the issue is how you're righteous on the day of the Lord before God. And the, the, the language is a righteousness of their own versus the righteousness of God, so 
clearly you have a delineation between the two, and the faith is either in your own righteousness or in the righteousness of God that is something alien to yourself that you not so much even so as receive, but it's accounted on your behalf. And the language is drawn from the sacrificial system, which, which is assumed that the righteousness of the animal that's accounted on your behalf is God's righteousness. It's the righteousness from God, right? Because the sacrifice is from God. Like Leviticus 17, verse 11, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves. Literally propitiation, but we'll get there in a second. I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to the Israelites, None of you may eat blood, nor may an alien living among you eat blood. So this is part of the whole kosher system that's designed around the reality that blood, the life is in the blood, and blood is the mechanism by which atonement and reconciliation is made between human beings. Okay, and so the, the righteousness from God is, is from God because he is, it, 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 it originates in God in the beginning. The animal belonged to God. And the animal is provided by God because he's ordained the system by which it comes from him and you offer it and it's reckoned on your account before him. You see what I'm saying? So the language of the righteousness of God or the righteousness from God is based in the sacrificial system in which the animal is provided from God anyway. All things are from him and to him and for him. You see what I'm saying? And so what Paul is saying is, look, the same way that people may have chosen not to participate in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, so the Israelites today have chosen not to participate in the sacrificial system that God has set up in light of redemptive history because they don't have faith, because they have a righteousness of their own, and they have a self righteousness and they are self-exalting and they will be humbled and they're passing judgment on people around them because of their self-righteousness. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so the whole thing works together based on the pride of man that this is why the Israelites will not be saved. And it's the same for Jew and Gentile alike. It's just the Jew because he's cultivated in righteousness has a particular stumbling block. And again, the stumbling block is a language of blindness, right? Because you don't stumble over stuff unless you can't see. So then he picks that up in the next chapter and says, look, a blindness has been placed upon them, or a hardness of heart, translated either way, but a blindness has been, they've been blinded partially because of the sovereignty of God. Because of their pride, they're blinded, and at some point, the blindness will be removed. They'll recognize their need for mercy, and they'll all be saved. But the point is, is that the stumbling block metaphor is a blindness idea in which pride and self-righteousness makes you blind to reality and how to relate to God and how to be saved. And you always get this, that really Gnostic movements will never focus on the cross. Never. They can't and won't, because it's the... the 
the state of the heart can't see the realities going on. And you're saved by your own works, technically, but the works are gnosis, they're knowledge and revelation. You see what I'm saying? And, and if you want to be saved, you have to get this revelation and this knowledge. And it's a, it's a, it's another, you know, the, the pride of man from the garden. It's just another aspect and manifestation of it. So, 2 Corinthians 5, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so what the new perspective will actually say, that if this is not, and you have to go here, is that if, uh, if it's not a sacrificial mechanism that's happening, then we are in that position, the righteousness of God. We're the covenant faithfulness that's making the message known. <laughs> right? Rather than we are we are accounted a righteousness from him on his behalf. We're actually the mechanism, rather than the sacrifice being the mechanism. <laughs> and so that's that's MT Wright's bit. Okay, so uh, the threefold expression of the substitutional righteousness of God. And so you have three words that are used, and they're all used in context to the blood, to the sacrifice. And so the blood, the sacrifice, is the mechanism by which these three aspects of atonement happen in the economy of God before his eyes. So Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Okay, so there is a righteousness of God in the law in the sacrificial system, but there's a righteousness of men that they're finding based upon their obedience to the law, right? So he's saying the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, <clears throat> primarily in the sacrificial bit. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, so you have a just a massively loaded paragraph. You have a bunch of words that don't get used in common society. Okay, so there's our first hurdle to get over, is that you have like four words that are like, you know, Righteousness gets you sometimes righteous, you know, it's like, I don't, you know, but it's not generally in real language, you know, that, that corresponds to the reality of human beings and what's going on. Justification happens something sometimes. Yeah, he was justified in that, right? And you, you kind of have, it carries the same basic meaning in the English language as it, as it did in then. It's usually... Uh, legally based. Sometimes it's just kind of 
you know, he, he was logical in doing that, but it usually carries the legal connotation with it, you know, whether he was, he's accused and he's justified or whatever. The, the redemption is less common, you know, we have movies, Shawshank Redemption, how is his life going to be redeemed? Uh, how, how is his, uh, you can redeem, you can still in the, economic sphere, you redeem stocks and bonds and these things, but it's not nearly as common in everyday use. And it's usually just generic, you know. His life was redeemed, you know, from its its misery. It's just this kind of generic uh, uh, deliverance idea or, or, or made better idea, okay. Now propitiation, which is, is more at the heart of the whole sacrificial system, right? Because whenever you hear in the Old Testament, make atonement, that is literally propitiation, the Greek word, okay? And then the New Testament, like the NIV, NIV Romans 3, God made him to be uh, an atonement, I think, is is how they interpret, is how they uh, yeah, interpret, translate Romans 3. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, so at least they include the language of sacrifice, but instead of put forward as a propitiation, they do sacrifice of atonement because the, the language is clearly all from the sacrificial system, right? So they do the phrase instead of propitiation. But propitiation doesn't mean sacrifice inherently. But propitiation is not in the English language. Nobody uses it, right? But it's, it's, a, it's a language of appeasement. How do I propitiate somebody who who is angry with me? How, how do I make somebody propitious towards me? Mm. Right. That's the that's the idea of it. How do I appease somebody from his anger and wrath and, and stir? So, okay. So first propitiation. Page four. Therefore, he had to be like his made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. 1 John 4, and, and this is love, verse 10, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So propitiation has to do with its, its royal language, ultimately, in which you have the, the anger of royalty towards being dishonored uh, in, in a state that we ought to be honored. And that's, it all comes down to respect and honor how anger and offense happens. We believe you should have treated me like this because I deserve, I, I deserve to be respected and honored. You did not treat me as such. Now I'm angry at you. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and all the language in the old Testament is revolves around God's royal position as a great King. And he has been dishonored and disrespected. Therefore he's angry towards his enemies and those who are in rebellion to him. Right. And like we talked about, it relates to the day of wrath, okay, the, the royal language, in which the day of the Lord is characterized as a day of wrath. And so, uh, we, I don't think we talked about it, if, you're, if you heard me in other places, you, you get the day of the Lord is broken down into three different descriptions. It's the day of wrath, which is royal language, the day of judgment, which is judicial language, law language, and the day of uh, uh, recompense or restitution, which is economic language, 
right? And it's not like a nifty system of categorization or whatever. It's just that you have language that describes the day of the Lord, and they go along, they're used in these aspects of life, right? Kings are angry, law people are, are, are judgmental, and marketplace guys are restitutional. They're payment-oriented, recompense-oriented, right? And so it's, and it's not, the, the reason we use the language like this is because we're created in the image of God, right? Like, you come over with a sledgehammer, you destroy my car, right? I'm going to be angry. Why? Because I deserve to be treated with respect, and my car's my property, it's somewhat of an extension from me, and it would be like you hammering me with a sledgehammer, but you hammered my car, right? And so I deserve to be treated as such, you dishonored, disrespect. I'm angry about it. What then am I going to do? We have laws about these things that protect the rights and, and innate value of human beings, and I'm going to press charges against you based on my anger. And I'm going to judge you and take you to court because you destroyed my car that I have placed value upon. Right? And then what's going to happen? I'm going to demand recompense and economy in exchange for the value to which you've destroyed. Right? And so you get a progression of anger, judgment, recompense based on the nature of how things are created. Life has value, things have value that we place upon them. And it's one thing if that car is just an old clunker that was given to me. I'm going to be angry about it. I'm going to press charges. I'm going to make you pay a value on it. It's another thing if I built that car and I place a higher value on it. Right? It's a $1,000 car. The recompense is going to be about $1,000. I'm going to be about $1,000 angry at you. I'm going to press about a $1,000 charge upon you. It's a $100,000 car that it's a Ferrari design, whatever, you know what I'm saying. And I got about 100000 value, and I'm about $100,000 angry, and I'm going to press about $100,000 charge on you. I'm going to extract it from you. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? So the day of the Lord is like this, in which the day of the Lord is a day of great wrath and fury. The, great, the day of the, the, the great anger of our Lord, right? Because he places a high value on what he's made, and he likes it, right? And it's in his eyes that he places the value. We don't, we don't get to place the value on it, right? We, we consider sin a small thing. Oh, it's just a little word, you know. Thirty years later, that person is still broken over that little word that you said in passing, right? And so we don't get to place the value on the human being. Oh, well, you know, it's... Yeah, it's just it's a small thing. The guys have in their mind how they treat females in their bodies. It's a, it's a small thing. It's just yeah. it just flesh. But in the eyes of God, it's a big thing. And the whole thing works together, the human person and body. And it, and it creates a whole lot of the, the, the ramifications, the implications, the, the damage that's done is far beyond our complication because it's not in our eyes. We didn't design the body. We didn't design it's infinite, how it all works together. And we didn't design, and we break it. We don't get to calculate the damage done to it. You see what I'm saying? So it's an issue of it's in the eyes of God, the value. Therefore, the wrath is in the eyes of God. 
And he's angry over the infinite value. And he's going to press charges that are infinite in nature according to that wrath. And he's going to extract from us infinite payment for those damages. You see what I'm saying? And if you can't pay, which you can't, because you're just a widow guy, you know what I'm saying? My son just drove my car, you know, he just put it in neutral, let my car go off a cliff and... Right? It's a $30,000 car, son. Well, I got five bucks. Here you go. No. No. The the payment doesn't add up. And so the payment happens with your very life. Right? Throw that wicked servant in jail until he can pay the payment. Right? And so it's it's the dynamic of Gehenna is the is the recompense system. Behold, I'm coming with my recompense, to give everyone according to what he's done. And those who have the right to the truth, but outside are the dogs, outside the city in the valley of Gehenna, in the lake of fire, outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the adulterers, right? And they will pay for the damages of their sins on the day of recompense. But if they can't pay, which they can't, they will pay with their lives. And that's how they will pay the damages done, right? So the the atonement language is designed around the realities of the day of the Lord. And the propitiation, the propitious language is designed around the royal language of the day of wrath. And we have dishonored God and made him angry and because we're, we're alienated, because of the holiness and depravity. And he's angry about our sins. And that, that's how it actually is. And we don't recognize what's going on, but it really is. And I understand all of this, again, why does nobody talk about the day of wrath and the day of the Lord? Why? Because it's negative. It's anger. It's judgment. It's, you know, and so we just rather avoid it, put fig leaves on it. Yeah, it's, but the reason for it is love. Right? Why is he going to destroy the wicked? Why is he angry toward it? Is because we have sent in and he loves, right? And there's a little bit of conflicting. He loves us while at the same time he's angry towards sin. And, you know, you have a, a, a uh, whatever, an internal conflict going on. But so anyway, the, the atonement language is designed around the language of the day of the Lord. And it's going to be a day of wrath that demands propitiation, appeasement, that God would be propitious towards us. And the death of the Messiah is accounted in the eyes of God as the means, the sacrifice, as the means of propitiation, that anger is relieved and appeased towards us. You understand? By our faith in it. So then the second is the day of judgment is the legal language of justification. And justification is one of those words that gets translated based on its context. And so if it's used in relation to the wicked, you get it actually translated as acquitted. Okay, so like 1 Corinthians 4. So he's saying, now it's required of me, verse 2, that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. It's literally any human day, right? And so it's a, it's a reference to the day of the Lord. But now we have courts now and human days in which we're judged, right? So it's, uh, 
I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent or justified. That does not make me justified or acquitted. So when it's applied to somebody under accusation towards the, you know, to the wicked, you can translate it as acquitted. And I find this helpful that rather than reading the word justified, you read the word acquitted because it gives, it gives more sense to what Paul is trying to drive home in justification is the legal forensic language of accusation in a courtroom setting and being acquitted of those charges. You see what I'm saying? But it's not, it's not just a theoretical abstract courtroom, okay? It's in anticipation of a real courtroom that's really going to happen on a real day. You, you, you see what I'm saying? And the thing is an anticipation that we are acquitted before God in anticipation of that day. Romans 4, for if Abraham was justified or acquitted by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now to the one who works, his wages are not count as a gift or imputed, right? They're not reckoned as a gift, but at his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who acquits the ungodly or justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness or imputed as righteousness or reckoned as righteousness. You see what I'm saying? It's in the mind of God as the great judge over the heavens and the earth in anticipation of the day of the Lord. Because this is what we're trying to, this thing is all building towards a day in which the wicked will get their due, right? In wrath, judgment, and recompense in an eternal lake of fire. And what do we do in light of that? How, do we, how are we going to stand before him righteous? How are we going to stand before him guiltless? How are we going to stand before him without spot or blame? Right? And so this is the whole game of we stand before him by faith in the sacrifice by the blood. Okay? Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, since we've been acquitted through faith, faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So you see, it's clearly in anticipation of that day in the future, which we get. You see, at just the right time, while we're still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You see what I'm saying? So the relationship now between the depravity of man and the holiness of God is in anticipation of that day. And it's based upon the faith in the blood that the sins have been acquitted. And then the last one is redemption, and it relates to the economic language. And, and clearly the background of, of the language is, is economic, you know, in, in, in the original language that's used in the marketplace of, of redeeming debts. 
which is how uh, Jesus interprets his own death. The Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served, and give him his life as a ransom or as a payment uh, for many. Ephesians 1, For he has chosen us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Okay, so in his sight is always, it's not just, oh God, the unseen, and he sees me and all my things. In his sight always has the 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 reference to the appearing of God and the seeing of God. When man sees him with his eyes and he descends with fire to, to you know, Isaiah 64, make his enemies a boiling pot, rending the heavens and coming down. <clears throat> In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. And so the adoption of sons is always understood like Romans like Romans 8, that the adoption happens when we're revealed in the resurrection, Luke 20, when we are sons of the resurrection. We are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So we're predestined by the deposit of the Holy Spirit to be conformed to his image in the resurrection at that day in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And then verse 9 and 10, right? According to the, you know, His, his uh, the, the administration of His will, the, the fullness of the times to bring all things under the headship of, of Christ Jesus. So again, you get the, this is, this is the point is that, like Peter says, Paul talks about this in all of his letters, a simple, a simple cruciform apocalyptic gospel that talks about the cross as a forgiveness of sin and light of the destruction of ungodly men of which we all are. You, you see what I'm saying? But you get all the language and the revelation of the wisdom and knowledge according to his plan and foreknowledge that he destined all and he consigned people over and hardened people and he's working this and it's you know, the man had revelation of how God is on this timeline but you get all of the language expounded upon the, the facets of the day of the Lord and how God is in anticipation of that and these things are hard to understand, which unstable men take and twist to their own demise. You, you see what I'm saying? So uh, Hebrews, you know, lands it more squarely within, like, like Ephesians 1, it's clearly in context to the sacrificial system, redemption in his blood. We have payment in his blood for our sins, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 8 places the redemption language more directly in the sacrifice language. Paul makes reference to it by the blood, but, you know, Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, which is based on better promises. What are the promises of? The promises are of atonement, right, from chapter 8. That's the idea of the new covenant in relation to the old covenant of the law, the Mosaic covenant, and that sacrificial system. 
It's not rejecting all the promises, obviously, of Abraham and all that. You, you know, the promises predate the law of Galatians 3, right? The, the, the point is, is that you have a, a superior, what couldn't be forgiven in the law of Moses. Now we are justified from Acts 13. We have a superior promise of atonement that cleanses not, not only outwardly, but inwardly in the soul that when we stand before God, we are clean before him and counted as righteous and inherit eternal life, right? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom, as a payment to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant, right? First Peter 1, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, Live your lives as strangers in reverent fear and in your, during your time of exile. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from an empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Right? So Romans 3, you get, he was set forward as a propitiation by his blood. Right? Romans 5, we are justified by his blood. Yes. Ephesians 1, we are redeemed by his blood. And so you get the three main words that are used in the New Testament to describe what happened in the righteousness of God provided in the sacrifice by the blood. And all three of them are designed around the language of the day of the Lord, the wrath, the judgment, and the recompense that's coming on the day of the Lord. And all three of them are in anticipation of the salvation at the day of the Lord. The propitiation, the appeasement of the wrath, the justification, the acquittal in light of the judgment that's coming, and the redemption in light of the, the recompense that God is just and He will pay back those who afflict you with affliction. Second Thessalonians 1, right? So I'm not trying to be overcomplicated. I'm just trying to put the words in their place on the timeline. Mm -hmm. you, you see what I'm saying? Because we have to come to terms with there's a lot of language that can be hard to understand. Okay? I, I'm, not, I'm wanting to make the things that can be hard to understand simple to understand. And why, does the, why is the language used like this? Because there's different aspects to the day of the Lord. Because there's different aspects to God. Because that's how he is. There's royal aspects. There's judicial aspects. There's economic aspects. And, and we have those aspects in our life because we're created in the image of God. Therefore, the atonement aspects, the reconciliation aspects, the sacrifice and blood aspects, and the righteousness aspects, they apply to those different aspects of anger and judgment and justification and economic and payment and redemption. You see what I'm saying? But all of them are not a kaleidoscope view of the cross. <laughs> it's just like this many facets of metaphors that speak about some transcendent reality that can't really be understood in the end. <laughs> oh, you're killing me, man, right? I mean, so if, I'm not going to name too many names already, but that, the, this is what's going on out there. And I took, and it, like my seminary career 
culminated with an atonement class where we read 3,000 pages of atonement theory throughout church history. And, and the whole point was, in the end, nobody can really know what's going on. Everybody just uses different language to argue their own little idea. And at the end, the testimony of a guy who was a youth director for like 15 years, and he came to seminary, and the testimony at the end of the class was, you know, I really came into this class just with confidence that, there, that, that I had a simple gospel. And, but now I feel like I've lost that. And, I, and, and it's just a bunch of different ideas. And, and, but it is straight, like he had this kind of, but that's a good thing. Uh, you know, I, I'm not so naive now that I, I have a simple, straightforward. And I understand all the many facets of the complaint, the nuances of of the different languages used in different contexts, and I've kind of transcended a naive, simplistic, over reductionistic view of, and I and I just sat there going, "This is hideously evil. What's happening right now? You know what I'm saying? It's hideously evil, and that a man got robbed of the good news." That he was a sinner and he was he was reconciled with a holy God through faith because a bunch of language couldn't be fit together in a simple way. You see what I'm saying? And so this is this is what I, I, I want to impart and instill is yes, there is a lot of different language, but it can still be interpreted in a simple timeline and the context of the passages, Paul is always driving towards that day, and he's fighting towards that day, and he's laboring, and he's fighting the good fight in light of how you interpret the first coming and that day, you know, and how you work in anticipation, and you're laboring towards that. You, you see what I'm saying? And he had a very simple approach to time and history, and the first coming and the second coming, but he had a lot of revelation and, and depth to that timeline. You say, oh, the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God who can discern it. You see what I'm saying? So we don't, we don't want a overly simplistic where it all just boils down to a little track. You know what I'm saying? It's not. The, the timeline is simplistic and can be put on a track, no doubt. But it's not limited to that. And it has infinite depth and revelation and knowledge to those who will respond to it rightly. You see what I'm saying? Those who will respond to the testimony of God about who they are, which anybody who has recognizes, you know, sometimes it takes five years of no sleep and puking babies and crying to three in the morning and you're like fuming at the person next to you is like, oh, yeah, I really am not really that nice of a human being. You know what I'm it's, like, it's like Alan Hood said, I was so holy. And then I got married, and there's this other person right there, you know, rubbing, and, you know, <laughs> marriage breaks you, and then children grind you. <laughs> but it's a good thing. It's not just that. It's, it's the pressures of life, and, and, and finances, and responsibilities, and, you, you know, you, you, get, you get put with, you put a few hundred thousand dollars on the line in that thing, and, 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 you might get thrown in jail and this, that, and the other. And man, you, you like fractures start to be revealed in your soul, and and you start to 
make decisions about people in light of the stresses of life. And God will, God has a, he's ordained an order to this age to bring people to their knees and cry out to him. You see what I'm saying? To recognize how they really are. The problem is, is it doesn't end at how we really are. You, you see what I'm saying? It goes beyond how we really are. We really are infinitely depraved, but it goes beyond that into God is infinitely merciful and loving and kind. And there is an infinite glory that awaits those who recognize who they are. You see what I'm saying? It's not. And the problem is, is that when you take it off the timeline and you put it in an abstract systematic theology that, you know, ends in playing a harp on a cloud and all the language doesn't light up. It's just like, and it reduces the value of it. And it's just like, oh, I'm just a sinner and I just got to get along until I die and go to heaven. It's like, you, you, you tri it, it, it reduces the value and it trivializes it all. But you put it on a timeline in which it was glory in the beginning. It's glory to come. It has infinite value and be an infinite value. God will judge the wicked because the damage is it's climaxing. It's moving towards a day. And it's, you see what I'm saying? It's like, yes, I am wicked. But oh, God, thank you for loving me and having mercy on me. You are going to redeem me from this body of bed. Thanks be to God who will redeem me from this. He sent his son as a sacrifice. There's now no condemnation. And I can live in anticipation of that. It's dead good news. You, you, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I, I'm actually going to inherit billions upon billions upon billions. Therefore, I can I cannot live to inherit the, the small change now, you know? And, and it's it, and, and I have a way of... of being found righteous before God and being acquitted of these things. And, and this is the testimony of God because he's actually ordained it this way and it's actually how it's going to play out. Not fairy tale, it's not story. Like there is only one way of salvation and forgiveness of sins in the name of that man. It's how it actually is. Okay, so most of the dispute... John, isn't it interesting how uh, in terms of realized eschatology we will attribute to the enemy what actually God's doing to crucify us. You know? Absolutely. So often that. Yep. And every genuine conversion story that makes your heart beat and come alive and makes you cry. You, you know what I'm saying? You'll never hear a Kingdom Now story that makes you cry. It'll, it'll, you may... Get a little whoosh up the spine. That's awesome, but I you don't trust the whoosh up the spine. All right, yeah, that, that thing is half the time that thing's messed up. But wow. the thing that makes you cry is always some form or another. God brought me to my knees, and I cried out to Him, and He brought me to the end of myself. Whether whether whatever pressure in life is going on, and He brought me to the end of myself, and and I cried out through myself and cast myself at the mercy of God. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that is always the, like, it's always the, 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 the testimony of the truly converted, the, the truly repentant, you know, that comes down to. And this is what Paul is, this is what Paul's battling against with the Pharisees and the circumcision group. You don't trust in God. You don't cast yourself on God. You cast yourself on yourself. You build yourself up, right? You don't. Cast yourself on the means by which God is ordained for salvation. You trust in yourself. You have a righteousness from yourself. 
You see what I'm saying? It's a very simple. Why do you? Because you're full of pride. That's you know, it's evident. You're passing judgment on everybody else. You you look down on your brothers because they can't keep the law and they 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 can't measure up and this that and the other. You see what I'm saying? And and so the accusation comes at Paul is that oh, well, you just sin all the more that grace may abound. Yeah, go for it, man. That's cool. And and and. That's not what Paul's saying, in, 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 as he says, you know, in Acts 26. I, I, everywhere I go, I tell. I tell Gentiles to repent and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And to produce fruit based upon, not that their fruit is the basis upon which they stand before God, but they produce fruit in keeping as a product of the basis of their righteousness before God. And it's not, like, you're never going to resolve the issue. You're, it, it will never happen. The issue is always going to be there. That if you believe in justification by faith, you will not produce, you will not walk in holiness. And that's completely the wrong way around. It's just, everybody has to deal with the dilemma of the depravity of man. We're all this way from birth. We're all scheming little yeah, when you have a five-year-old and he's working his little scheme constantly, they never stop working it. They're just working, working, working. And they're just going like this, and you're constantly like disciplining from the age of two and on. And they get older, they get a little bit smarter, and they kind of like they hide it a little bit more. Hey, 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 Dad, you know, I, what if we did this? You know what I mean? It's like, but we're all this way. And how do you describe us being this way? We're all this way. On the inside, we just, you get older and you 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 learn ways to say that I I'm not really this way. <laughs> I'm not working on this. But we're all this way. How do you describe and like and so the thing that Paul is driving against with the Pharisees is that there's a rejection of being this way and that it's not a it's not a systematic theology. It's a way of dealing with reality. And how does God deal with us? And how do we deal in anticipation of that day? And, and you're not going to resolve the tension. The tension is there because it is this way. And we are this way. You know what I'm saying? And he, there's only one way to deal with the tension and anticipation of midnight judgment. Is that you cope with being this way in faith that on that day, it will turn out like this. You, you know what I'm saying? And with fear and trembling, and then this is part of the, okay, we haven't gotten to the accusation, right? But the accusation that, that comes is from, in the New Testament, the main contention is the, the circumcision group. Okay? Are you in any kind of new section? Here's my suggestion. Yeah, you're probably right. We should. Well, just, um, I just take maybe a maybe ten minute break. Yeah. Let's take a break and yeah. we'll look at whether it's recording or not. Yeah, yeah.